The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft West of Arkham, the hills rise wild, and there are valleys with deep woods that no axe has ever cut. There are dark, narrow glens where the tree slopes fantastically, and where thin brooklets trickle without ever having caught the glint of sunlight. On the gentle slopes there are farms, ancient and rocky, with squat, moss-coated cottages brooding eternally over old New England secrets in the lee of great ledges. But these are all vacant now, the wide chimneys crumbling and the shingled sides bulging perilously beneath low gambrel roofs. The old folk have all gone away, and the foreigners do not like to live here. French Canadians have tried it, Italians have tried it, and the Poles have come and departed. It is not because of anything that can be seen or heard or handled, but because of something that is imagined. The place is not good for the imagination, and it does not bring restful dreams at night. It must be this which keeps away the foreigners, for old Ami Pierce have never told them of anything he recalls from the strange days. Ami, whose head has been a little queer for years, is the only one who still remains or ever talks about the strange days, and he dares to do this because his house is so near open fields and the traveled roads around Arkham. There was once a road over the hills and through the valleys that ran straight where the blasted heath is now, but people ceased to use it and a new road was laying carving far towards the south. Traces of the old one can still be found amidst the weeds of returning wilderness, and some of them will doubtlessly linger, even when half the hollows are flooded from the new reservoir. Then the dark woods will be cut down, and the blasted heath will slumber far below blue waters whose surface will mirror the sky and ripple in the sun, and the secrets of the strange days will be one with the deep secrets, one with the hidden lore of old ocean and all the mystery of primal earth. When I went to the hills and vells to survey for the new reservoir, they told me the place was evil. They told me this in Arkham, and because that was a very old town full of witch legends, I thought the evil must have been something which grandams had whispered to children through the centuries. The name Blasted Heath seemed to be very odd and theatrical, and I wondered how it had come into the folklore of a Puritan people. Then I saw that dark westward tangle of glens and slopes for myself, and ceased to wonder at what anything besides its own elder mystery. But the shadow lurked always. The trees grew too thickly, and their trunks were too big for any healthy New England wood. There was too much silence in the dim alleys between them, and the floor was too soft with the dank moss and matting of infinite years of decay. In the open spaces, mostly along the line of the old road, there were little hillside farms, sometimes with all the buildings standing, sometimes with only one or two, and sometimes with only a lone chimney or, or a fast-feeling cellar. Weeds and briars assigned and furtive raw things rustled in the undergrowth. Upon everything, there was a haze of restlessness and oppression. 
a touch of the unreal and the grotesque, as if some vital element of perspective or chiaroscuro were awry. I did not wonder that the foreigners would not stay, for this was no region to sleep in. It was too much like a landscape of Salvatore Rosa, too much like some forbidden woodcut, in a tale of terror. But even all this was not so bad as the blasted heath. I knew at the moment I had come upon it at the bottom of a spacious valley, for no other name could fit such a thing, or any other thing fit such a name. It was as if the poet coined the phrase from having seen this one particular region. It must, I thought, as I viewed it, be the outcome of a fire. But why had nothing new ever grown over these five acres of grey desolation that scrawls open to the sky like a great spot eaten by acid in the woods and fields? It lies largely to the north of the ancient road line, but encroached a little on the other side. I felt a odd reluctance about approaching, but did so at last only because my business took me through and past it. There was no vegetation of any kind on that broad expanse, but only a fine gray dust or ash, which no wind seemed to ever blow about. The trees near it were sickly and stunted, and many dead trunks stood or lay rotting at the rim. In the cellar on my right, and the yawning black maw of an abandoned well whose stagnant vapors played strange tricks with the hues of sunlight. Even the long, dark, woodland climb beyond seemed welcome in contrast, and I marveled no more at the frightened whispers of Arkham people. There had been no house or ruin near, even in the old days. The place must have been lonely and remote, and at twilight, dreading to repass the ominous spot, I walked through circuitously back to town by the curving road on the south. I vaguely wished some clouds would gather, for an odd timidity, the deep sky voids above had crept into my soul. In the evening, I asked the old people in Arkham about the blasted heath, and what it was meant by the phrase, strange days, which so many elusively muttered. I could not, however, get any good answers, and all the mystery was more recent than I had dreamt. It was not a matter of old legendary at all, but something within a lifetime of those who spoke. It had happened in the 80s, and a family had disappeared or was killed. Speakers would not be exact, and because they told me all to pay no attention to all Ami's Pierce's crazy tales, I sought him out the next morning, having heard that he lived alone in the ancient tottering cottage where the trees first began to get very thick. It was a fearsomely archaic place, and had begun to exude the faint miasmal odor which clings to the houses that have stood too long. Only with persistent knocking could I rouse the aged man, and when he shuffled timidly to the door I could tell he was not glad to see me. He was not so feeble as I expected, but his eyes drooped in a curious way, and his unkempt clothes and white beard made him seemed very worn and dismal. Not knowing how he could best be launched on his tails, I faint a matter of business and told him of my surveying and asked vague questions about the district. It was far brighter and more educated than I had been led to think. 
and before I knew it, it had grasped quite as much of the subject as any man I had talked to while in Arkham. It was not like the other rustics I have known in the sections where the reservoirs were to be. From him, there was no protest at the miles of old wood and farmland that would be blotted out, though perhaps there would have been had not the home lain outside that bounds of the future lake. Relieved was all he shewed, relief at the doom of the dark ancient valleys which he had roamed all his life. They were better underwater now, better underwater since the strange days, and with this opening his husky voice sank low while his body leaned forward and his right forefinger began to point shakily and impressively. It was then that I heard the story, and as the rambling voice scraped and whispered on, I shivered again and again despite this summer day. Often I had to recall the speaker from the ramblings, piece out scientific points, which he knew only by a fading parrot memory of oppressor talk or a bridge over gaps where his sense of logic and continuity broke down. When he was done, I did not wonder that his mind had snapped a trifle, or that the folk of Arkham could not speak much of the blasted heath. I hurried back before sunset to my hotel, unwilling to have the stars come out above me in the open, and the next day returned to Boston to give up my position. I could not go into the dim chaos of the old woods and slopes again, or face another time that gray blessed heath where the black well yawned deep beside the tumbled bricks and stones. The reservoir will soon be built, and all those elder secrets will be safe forever under watery phantoms, and even then I do not believe I would like to visit that country by night, or at least not when the sinister stars are out, and nothing could bribe me to drink the new city water of Arkham. It had all began, old Ami said, with the meteorite. Before that time, there had been no wild legends at all since the witch trials, and even then, these western woods were not feared half as much as a small island in the Mesotonic where the devil held court besides a curious stone altar, older than the Indians. These were not haunted woods, and their fantastic dusk was never terrible, till the strange days. Then there had come that white noontide cloud, that string of explosions in the air, and the pillar of smoke from the valley far into the wood, and by night all of Arkham had heard of the great rock that fell out of the sky, and in embedded itself into the ground besides the well in Nathan Gardner's place. That was the house which stood where the blessed heath was to come. The trim white Gardner house amidst its fertile gardens and orchards. Nathan had come to town to tell people about the stone, and had dropped in by Ami Pierce's on the way. Ami was forty then, and all the queer things were fixed strongly in his mind. He and his wife had gone with the three professors from the Mesotonic University, who had hastened out the next morning to see the weird visitor from the unknown stellar space, and wondered why Nathan had called it so large the day before. It had shrunk. Nathan said as he pointed out the big brownish mound above 
the ripped earth and charred grass near the archaic well sweep in his front yard, but the wise men answered that stones do not shrink. Its heat lingered persistently, and Natham declared it, that it had glowed faintly at night. The professors tried it with a geologist's hammer, and found it was oddly soft. It was, in truth, so soft as to be almost plastic. It may gouge rather than chipped a specimen to take back to the college for testing. They took it in an old pail, borrowed from Nathan's kitchen, for even the small piece refused to grow cool. On the trip back, they stopped at Ami's to rest, and seemed thoughtful when Miss, Mrs. Pierce remarked that the fragment was growing smaller and was burning the bottom of the pail. Truly, it was not as large, but perhaps they had taken less than they thought. The day after, all of this was in June of 82, the professors had trooped out again with the great excitement. As they passed Ami's, they told him what queer things the specimen had done, and how it had faded wholly away when they put it in a glass beaker. The beaker had gone too, and the wise men talked of this strange stone's affinity for silicon, what had acted quite unbelievably in that well-ordered laboratory, doing nothing at all and chewing no occluded gases when heated on charcoal, being wholly negative in the borax head, and soon proving itself absolutely non-volatile in any producible temperature, including that of the oxyhydrogen blowpipe. Once on an anvil, it seemed highly malleable, and in the dark its luminosity was very marked. Stubbornly refusing to grow cool, it soon had the college in a state of real excitement, whereupon heating it before the spectroscope, it displayed shining bands unlike any known colors of normal spectrum. There was much breathless talk of new elements, bizarre optical properties, and other things which puzzled men of science are wont to say when faced by the unknown. Hot as it was, they tested in a crucible with, with all the proper regents. Water did nothing. Hydrochloric acid was the same. Nitric acid and even aqua regina merely hissed and spattered against its torrid and vulnerability. Ami had difficulties in recalling all the, these things, but recognized them with the solvents as I mentioned them in the usual order of use. There's ammonia and toxic soda, alcohol and ether, noxic carbon disulfates, and a dozen others. And although the weight grew steadily less as time passed, the fragment seemed to be slightly cooling, there was no change in the solvents to shew that they had attacked the substance at all. It was a metal, though, beyond a doubt. It was magnetic, for one thing, and after its immersion in the acid and solvents, there seemed to be faint traces found on meteoric iron. When the cooling had grown considerable, the testing was carried out on glass, and within a glass beaker that they left all the little chips made from the original fragments during their work. The next morning, both the chips and beaker were gone without a trace, and only a charred spot marked the place on the wooden shelf where they had been. All this professor told Ami as they paused at his door, and once more he went with them to see the stony messenger from the stars, though this time his wife did not accompany him. It had been now most certainly shrunk 
Even the sober professor could not doubt the truth of what they saw. All around the dwindling brown lump near the well was a vacant space where the earth has caved in, and whereas it had been a good seven feet across the day before, it was now scarcely five, and it was still hot, and the sages studied its surface curiously as they detached another and larger piece with a hammer and chisel. They gouged it deeply this time, and as they pried away the smaller mass, they saw the core of the thing was not quite homogeneous. They had uncovered what seemed to be the side of a large color goblet embedded in the substance, a color which resembled some of the bands in the meteor's strange spectrum was almost impossible to describe, and it was only by analogy that they called it a color at all. The texture was glossy, and upon tapping, it appeared promise of both brittleness and hollowness. One of the professors gave it a smart blow with a hammer, and it burst with a nervous little pop. Nothing was emitted, and all trace of the thing vanished with the puncturing of it. It left behind a hollow spherical space about three inches across, and all thought it was probable that others would be discovered as the encasing substance wasted away. Conjecture was vain, so after a futile attempt to find additional globules by drilling, the seekers left again with their new specimen, which proved, however, as baffling in the laboratory as its predecessors have been, aside from being almost plastic, having heat magnetism, and a slight luminosity, cooling significantly in powerful acids, possessing an unknown spectrum, wasting away in air, and attacking silicone compounds with mutual destruction as result. It presented no identifying features whatsoever, and at the end of the test, the college scientists were forced to own that they could not place it. It was nothing of this earth, but a piece of the great outside, and as such dowered with outside properties and obedient to outside laws. That night, there was a thunderstorm, and when the professors went out to Nathan's the next day, they met with a bitter disappointment. The stone, magnetic as it been, must have had some particular electrical properties, for it had drawn the lightning, as Nathan said, with a singular persistence. Six times within an hour, the farmer saw the lightning strike the furrow in the front yard, and when the storm was over, remained nothing but a ragged by the ancient well sweep, half choked with caved-in dirt, digging, born no fruit, and the scientists verified the fact of utter vanishment. The failure was total, and nothing was left to do but go back to the laboratory and test again. The despairing fragment left carefully, cased in lead. The fragment lasted a week, and at the end of which nothing of value had been learned of it. When... It was gone, no residue was left behind, and in the time the professors felt scarcely sure they had indeed seen with waking eyes the cryptid vestige of the phantomless gulf outside, that lone weird message from the other universes and the other realms of matter, force, and entity. As was natural, the Arkham Papers made much of the incident, with its collegiate sponsoring and sent reporters to talk with Nathan Gardner and his family. At least one Boston Daily also sent a scribe, and Nathan quickly became a kind of local celebrity. He was a lean, genial person of about 50, living with his wife and three sons on the pleasant farmstead in the valley. 
He and Ami exchanged visits frequently, as did their wives, and Ami had nothing but praise to say for him. After all those years, he seemed slightly proud of the notice his place had attracted, and often talked of the meteor in the succeeding weeks. That was June, and Nathan worked hard in his haying in his ten-acre pasture across Chapman's Brook, his rattling wain heard in the deep ruts in the shattery lanes between. The labor tired him more than it had in other years, and he felt that age was beginning to tell on him. Then fell the time of fruit and harvest. The pears and apples slowly ripened, and Nathan vowed that his orchards were prospering as never before. The fruit was now growing to a phenomenal size, an unwont gloss, and in such abundance extra barrels were ordered to handle the future crop. But with the ripening came a sore disappointment. For all of the gorgeous array of spacious lusciousness, not a single jot was fit to eat. In the fine flavor of the pears and apples, a stealthy bitterness and sickishness, so that even the smallest bites induced a lasting disgust. It was the same with the melons and tomatoes, and Nathan sadly saw his entire crop was lost. Quickly to connect the events, he declared that the meteorite had poisoned the soil, and thanked the heavens that most of the other crops were in in the upland lot along the road. Winter came early, and it was very cold. Ami saw Nathan less often than usual, and observed that he had begun to look worried. The rest of his family, too, seemed to have grown taciturn, and were far from steady in their church-going, or attendance at the various social events of the countryside. For this reserve, or melancholy, no cause could be found. Though all household confessed now and then to poor health and a feeling of vague disquiet, Nathan himself gave the most definite statement of anyone when he said he was disturbed about certain footprints in the snow. They were the usual winter prints of red squirrels, white foxes, and rabbits, but the brooding farmer professed to see something not quite white about their nature and arrangement. He was never specific but to think that they were not characteristics of the anatomy and habits of squirrels, rabbits, and foxes as they ought to be. Ami listened without interest to this talk until one night when he drove past Nathan's house on his sleigh on the way back from Clark's Corners. There had been a moon and a rabbit had run across the road, and the leap of that rabbit was longer than any Ami or his horse like. The latter, indeed, almost ran away when brought up by a firm rain. Thereafter, Ami gave Nathan's tales more respect and wondered why the gardener's dog seemed to cow and quiver every morning. They had, it developed, nearly lost spirit to bark. In February, the McGregor boys from Meadow Hill were out shooting woodchucks not far from the gardener place, bagged a very particular specimen. The proportions of its body seemed slightly altered in a queer way, impossible to describe, while its face has taken on an expression which no one had ever saw on a woodchuck before. The boys were generally frightened and threw the thing away at once, so that only their grotesque tale of it would ever reach the people of the countryside. But the shying away of horses near Nathan's house had now become an acknowledged thing, and all the basis for a cycled, whispered, legend was fast taking form. People vowed 
that the snow melted faster around Nathan than it did anywhere else. And early in March, there was an odd discussion in Potter's General Store at Clock's Corners, Stephen Rice, and I noticed that the skunk cabbages are coming up through the muds and by the woods across the road. Never were things such of a size seen before. Amy held strange colors that could not be put into any words. Their shapes were monstrous, and the horse had snorted at the odor that struck Stephen as wholly unprecedented. That afternoon, several persons drove past to see the abnormal growths, and all agreed that that plants of that kind ought never be spouted in a healthy world. The bad fruit of the fall before was freely mentioned, and it went from mouth to mouth that there was poison in Nathan's ground. Of course, it was a meteorite, and remembering how strange the men from the college found the stone to be, several farmers spoke of that matter to them. One day they paid Nathan a visit, but having no love of wild tales and folklore, were very conservative in what they... The plants were certainly odd, but all skunk cabbages were more or less odd in shape and odor and hue. Perhaps some mineral element from the stone had entered the soil, but it would soon be washed away. And as for the footprints and the frightened horses, of course, this was mere country talk. With such a phenomenon as the aerolite would be certain to start. There is nothing showing for serious men to do in case wild gossip, for superstitious rustics will say and believe anything. And so, although the strange days, the professors swayed, the professors stayed away in contempt. Only one of them, when given two files of dust for analysis and a police job over a year and a half later, recalled that the queer color of the cabbage skunk had been like the anomalous band of light shewn by the meteor fragments in the college spectroscope, and like the brighter globule found embedded in the stone from the abyss. The samples of this analysis gave the same odd bands at first, although later they lost that property. The trees budded prematurely around Nathan's and at night they swayed ominously in the wind. Nathan's second son, Thaddeus, a lad of fifteen, swore that they swayed also when there were no wind, and even the gossips would not credit this. Certainly, however, restlessness was in the air. The entire Gardner family developed a habit of stealthily listening, although not for any sounds which they could consciously name. They listened. The listening was indeed rather a product of movement when consciousness seemed half to slip away. Unfortunately, such movements increased week by week till it became a common speech that something was wrong with all the Nathan's folks. When the early saxifrage came out, it had another strange color, not like that of the skunk cabbage, but plainly related and equally unknown to anyone who saw it. Nathan took some blossoms to Arkham and shewn it to the editor of the Gazette, but the dignitary did no more than write a humorous article about them, in which the dark fears of rustics were held up to polite ridicule. It was a mistake of Nathan's to tell a stolid city man about the way the great overgrown morning cloak butterflies behave in connection to the 
saxophase. April had brought a kind of madness to the country folk and began the disuse of the road past Nathan's, which led to its ultimate abandonment. It was vegetation. All the orchard trees blossomed forth in strange colors, and through stony soil of the yard, an adjacent passage, there sprang up a bizarre growth which only a botanist could connect with the proper flora of the region. No sane, wholesome colors were anywhere to be seen except in the green grasses and leafage. But everywhere, those hectic and prismatic variants of some diseased underlying primary tone without a place among the known tints of earth. The Dutchman's breeches became a thing of sinister menace, and the blood rots grew insolent in their chromatic perversion. Ami and the gardeners thought that most of the colors had sort of a haunting familiarity and decided that they reminded one of the brittle globule in the meteor. Nathan plowed and sowed the ten-acre pasture in the upland lot, but did nothing with the land around the house. He knew it would be of no use and hoped that the summer's strange growth would draw the poison from the soil. It was prepared for almost anything now, and I'd grown used to the sense of something near him waiting to be heard. The shunning of his house by neighbors told on him, of course, but it told on his wife more. Boys were better off being at school each day, but they could not help to be frightened by the gossip. Thaddeus, an especially sensitive youth, suffered the most. In May, the insects came, and Nathan's place became a nightmare of buzzing and crawling. Most of the creatures seemed not quite usual in their aspects and in motions and their nocturnal habits contradicted all the former experience. The gardeners took to watching at night, watching in all directions at random for something. They could not tell what. It was then that they all owned that Thaddeus had been right about the trees. Miss Gardner was next to see it. From the window as she watched the swollen boughs of a maple against the moonlit sky, the boughs surely moved, and there was no wind. It must have been the sap. Strangeness had come from everything growing now, yet it was none of Nathan's family that had made the next discovery. Familiarity had dulled them, and what they could not see was glimpsed by a timid windmill salesman from Bolton who had drove by one night in ignorance of the country legends. What he told of in Arkham was given a short paragraph in the Gazette, and it was there all the farmers, including Nathan, saw it first. The night had been dark, and the buggy lamps faint, but around a farm in the valley, which everyone knew from the account much been Nathan's, in the darkness had been a little bit thick. A dim, though distant, luminosity seemed to in here in all the vegetation, grass, leaves, and blossoms alike, while at one moment, in a detached piece of phosphorescence appeared to stir, furtive, in the yard near the barn. The grass had so far seemed untouched, and the cows were freely pastured in the yacht near the house, but towards the end of May the milk began to be bad. Then Nathan had the cows driven to the uplands after which the trouble ceased. Not long after this change in the grass and leaves came apparent to the eye, all the verdure 
was going gray and was developing a highly singular quality of brittleness. Ami was now the only person who ever visited the place, and his visits were becoming fewer and fewer. When the school closed, the gardeners were virtually cut off from the world, and sometimes let Ami do their errands in town. They were failing curiously, both physically and mentally, and no one was surprised when the news of Mrs. Gardner's madness stole around. It happened in June, about the anniversary of the meteor fall, and the poor woman screamed about things in the air that she could not describe. In her ravings, there was not a single specific noun, but only verbs and pronouns. Things moved and changed and fluttered, and ears tingled to impulses which were not wholly sounds. Something was taken away. She was being drained of something. Something was fastening itself onto her that ought not to be. Someone must make it keep off. Nothing was ever still at night. The walls, the windows shifted. Nathan did not send her to the county asylum, but let her wander about the house as long as she was harmless to herself and others. Even when her expressions changed, she did nothing. But when the boys grew afraid of her, and Thaddeus nearly fainted at the way she made faces at him, he decided to keep her locked in the attic. By July, she had ceased to speak and crawled on all fours. And before the month was over, Nathan had got the mad motion that she was slightly luminous in the dark, as he now clearly saw was the case with the nearby vegetation. It was a little before this that the horses had stampeded. Something had aroused them in the night, and their neighing and kicking in their stalls had been terrible. There seemed virtually nothing to do to calm them, and when Nathan opened the stable door, they bolted out like frightened woodland deer, took a week to track all four, and when found, they were quite useless and unmanageable. Something had snapped in their brains, and each of them had to be shot for its own good. Nathan borrowed a horse from Ami for his haying, but found it would not approach the barn. It shied, balked, and whinnied, and in the end he could do nothing but drive it into the yard, while the men used their own strength to get the heavy wagon near enough to the hayloft for conventional pitching. And all the while the vegetation was turning gray and brittle, even the flowers, whose hue was so strange, were graying now, and the fruit was coming out gray and dwarfed and tasteless, and the asters and goldenrods bloomed gray and distorted, and the roses and zinnia and ho hollyhocks in the front yard were such blasphemous-looking things that Nathan's old end boy Zinnius cut them down. The strangely puffed insects died about that time. Even the bees had left their hives and taken to the woods. By September, all vegetation was fast crumbling into grayish powder, and Nathan feared that the trees would die before the poison was out of the soil. His wife now had spells of terrific screaming. He and the boys were in a constant state of nervous tension. They shunned people now, and when school opened, the boys did not go. But it was Ami, on one of his rare visits, who first realized that the well water was no longer good. It had an evil taste, and it was not exactly fetid, nor exactly salty. And Ami advised his friends to dig another well on higher ground, to use till the soil was good again. Nathan, however, ignored the warning, for he had that time become callous to the strange, unpleasant things. He and the boys continued to use the tainted supply, drinking it, 
as listlessly and mechanically as, as they ate their meager and ill-cooked food and did their thankless and monotonous chores through the aimless days. There was something of a stolid resignation in all of them, as if they walked half at another world between lines of nameless guards to a certain and familiar doom. Thaddeus went mad in September after a visit to the well. He had gone with a pail and had come back empty-handed, shrieking and waving his arms, and sometimes lapsing into an inane titter and a whisper about the moving colors down there. Two in one family was pretty bad, but Nathan was very brave about it. He let the boy run about for a week until he began stumbling and hurting himself. Then he shut him in the attic room across the hall from his mother's. The way they screamed at each other from behind their locked doors were very terrible, especially to little Merwin, who fancied they talked in some terrible language that was not of earth. Merwin was getting frightfully imaginative, and his restlessness was worse after shutting away of the brother who had been his greatest playmate. Almost at the same time of the mortality among the livestock commenced, poultry began turning grayish and died very quickly, their meat being found dry and noisome. Upon cutting, the hogs grew inordinately fat, then began to undergo loathsome changes which no one could explain. Their meat, of course, was useless, and Nathan was at his wit's end. No rural veterinary would approach his place, and the city veterinary from Arkham was openly baffled. The swine began growing gray and brittle and falling to pieces before they died and their eyes and muzzles developed singular alterations. It was very inexplicable, for they never have been fed the tainted vegetation. Then something struck the cows. Certain areas of the whole body would be uncannily shriveled or compressed, and atrocious collapses or disintegrations were common. In the last stages, death was always a the result. They would be graying and turning brittle like that which beset the hogs. There could be no question of poison, for all the cases occurred in a locked and undisturbed barn. No bites of prowling things could have brought a virus, for what live beast on earth could pass through solid objects? It must only be a natural disease. But yet, what disease could reap which such results was beyond any mind's guessing. When the harvest came, there's not an animal surviving on the place. Her stock and poultry were dead. The dogs had ran away. These dogs, three in number, had all vanished one night and were never heard of again. The five cats had left some time before, but their goings were scarcely noticed, since there seemed to be no mice, and only Mrs. Gardner made pets of the graceful felines. On the 19th of October, Nathan staggered into Army's house with hideous news. Death had come to Per Thaddeus in his attic room. It had come in a way which could not be told. Nathan had dug a grave in the railed family plot behind the farm, and had put therein what he found. There could have been nothing from outside, for the small barred window and locked door were intact. But it was much as it had been in the barn. Ami and his wife consoled the stricken man the best they could, but they struggled as they did so. Stark terror seemed to cling around the gardeners, and all they touched, and the very presence of one in the house was a breath away 
from regions unnamed and unnameable. Ami accompanied Nathan home with their greatest reluctance, and did what he might to calm the hysterical sobbing of little Merwin. Xenius needed no calming. He had to come of late, do nothing but stare into space, and obey what his father told him. And Ami thought that his fate was very merciful. Now and then, Merwin's screamer answered faintly from the attic, and in response to an inquiring look, Nathan said that his wife was getting very feeble. When the night approached, Ami managed to get away. Not for even friendship could make him stay in that spot when the faint glow of the vegetation began and the trees may or may not have swayed without wind. It was really lucky for Ami that he was not more imaginative. Even as things were, his mind was bent ever so slightly, but had he been able to connect and reflect upon all the portents around him, he might have inevitably turned a total maniac. In the twilight, he'd hastened home. The screams of the mad woman and the nervous child ring horribly in his ears. Three days later, Nathan lurched into Ami's kitchen in early morning, and in the absence of his host, stammered about a desperate tale once more while Mrs. Pierce listened in a clutching fright. It was little Merwin this time. He was gone. He had gone out late at night with a lantern and a pail for water, and had never come back. He's been going to pieces for days and hardly knew what he was about, screaming at everything. There had been a frantic shriek from the yard, but before the father could get to the door, the boy was gone. There was no glow from the lantern he had taken, and the child himself, no trace. At the time, Nathan thought the lantern and pill were gone too, but when the dawn came and the man plodded back from his all-night search of the woods and fields, he had found some curious things new to well, which had certainly been the lantern, while a bent pill twisted iron hoops beside it, both half-fused, seemed to hint at the remnant of the pale. That was all Nathan was past imagining. Mrs. Pierce was blank, and Ami, when he had reached home, heard the tale and could give no guesses. Merwin was gone, and there would be no use in telling people around, who shunned all the gardeners now. No use either in telling the city folk in Arkham, who laughed at everything. Thad was gone. Now, Marnie was gone. Something was creeping and creeping and waiting to be seen and felt and heard. Nathan would go soon, and he wanted Army to look after his wife and Zinnius, if they were to survive him. It must all be a judgment of some sort, though he could not fancy for what, since he had always walked uprightly in the Lord's way so far as he knew. For over two weeks, Omni saw nothing in Nathan, and then, worried about what might have happened, he overcame his fears and paid the garret's place a visit. There was no smoke from the great chimney, and for a moment the visitor was apprehensive of the worst. The aspect of the whole farm was shocking. Grayish, withered grass and leaves on the ground, vines falling in brutal wreckage from archaic walls and gables and the great bare trees clawing up at the gray November sky with a studied malevolence, which Ami could not but feel had come from some subtle change in the tilt of the branches. But Nathan was alive, after all. He was weak, 
lying on the couch in a low-ceiling kitchen, but perfectly conscious and able to give simple orders to Zinnius. The room was deadly cold, and as Ami visibly shivered, the host shouted huskily at Zinnius for more wood. Wood indeed was sorely needed, since the cavernous fireplace was unlit and empty, the cloud of soot blowing from the chill wind that came down the chimney. Presently, Nathan asked him if extra wood had made him any more comfortable, and when Army saw what happened, the stoutest cord had been broken at last. The hapless farmer's mind was proof against more sorrow. Questioning tactfully, Army could get no clear data about the missing Zinnius. In the well, he, he lives in the well, was all the clouded father could say. But then, flashed across the visitor's mind a sudden thought of the mad wife, and he changed his line of inquiry. Nabby? Why, here she is, was the surprise response of poor Nathan. And Ami soon saw that he must search for himself, leaving the harmless babbler on the couch. He took the keys from the nail beside the door and climbed the creaking stairs to the attic. It was very close and noisome going up there, and there, and no sound could be heard from any direction. From the four doors in the site, only one of them was locked, and on this he took various keys from the ring he had taken. The third key proved the right one, and after some fumbling, Ami threw open the low white door. It was quite dark inside, for the window was small and half obscured by the crude wooden bars, and Ami could see nothing at all on the wide, planked floor. The stench was beyond enduring, and before proceeding further, he had to retreat to another room, and returned with his lungs filled with breathable air. When he did enter, he saw something dark in the room, and upon seeing it more clearly, he screamed outright. While he screamed, he thought a momentary cloud eclipsed the window, and a second later he felt himself brush as if by some heatful current of vapor. Strange colors danced before his eyes, and had not a present horror numbed him, he would have thought of the global that the geologist's hammer had shattered, and of morbid vegetation that sprouted in the spring, as if he thought only of the blasphemous monstrosity which confronted him, in which all too clearly had shared the nameless fate of young Thaddeus and the livestock. But the terrible thing about this horror was it was very slowly and perceptibly moved as it continued to crumble. Ami would give me no added particulars to the scene, but the shape in the corners did not reappear in his tail as a moving object. There are things which cannot be mentioned, and what is done in common humanity is sometimes cruelly judged by the law. I gathered that no moving things was left in the attic, and that to leave anything capable of motion there would have been a deed so monstrous as to damn any accountable being to internal torment. Anyone but the stolid farmer would have fainted or gone mad, but Ami walked conscious through that low doorway and locked the accursed secret behind him. There would be Nathan to deal with now. He must be fed and tended, and re removed to some place where he could be cared for. Commencing his descent, 
of the dark stairs, Ami heard a thud below him. He even thought a scream had been suddenly choked off and recalled nervously the clammy vapor which brushed by him in that frightful room above. What presence had made his cry and entry startle up? Halted by some vague fear, he heard still further sounds below. Indubitably, there was sort of a heavy dragging and a most detestable sticky noise of some fiendish and unclean species of suction. With an associative sense goaded to feverish heights, he thought unaccountably of what he had seen upstairs. Good God, what eldritch dream world was this unto which he blundered? He dared move neither backwards nor forwards, but stood there trembling at the black curve of the boxed-in staircase. Every trifle of the scene burned itself into his brain. The sound, the sense of dread expectancy, the darkness, the steepness of the narrow stairs, the merciful heavens, the faint but unmistakable luminosity of all the woodwork in sight, steps, sides, exposed lathes, and beams alike. Then burst a frantic whinny from Ami's horse outside, followed at once by a clatter which told of a frenzy runaway. In another moment, horse and buggy had gone beyond earshot, leaving the frightened man on the dark steps to guess what had sent them away. But that was not all. There had been another sound out there, a sort of liquid splash. Water. It must have been the well. He had left hero tied near it, and the buggy wheel must have brushed against the coping and knocked in a stone, and still the pale phosphorescence glowed in that detestably ancient woodwork. God, how old was this house? Most of it was built before 1670, and the gable roof was not later than 1730. A feeble scratching on the floor downstairs now sounded distinctly, and Army's grip tightened on a heavy stick he had picked up back in the attic for some purpose. Slowly nerving himself, he finished his ascent and walked boldly towards the kitchen. But he did not complete that walk, because what he sought was no longer there. It had come to meet him. It was still alive after a fashion. Whether it crawled or whether it had been dragged by external force, Ami could not say. But the death had been at it. Everything had happened in the last half hour, but the collapse Graying and disintegration was already far advanced. There was a horrible brittleness, and dry fragments were scaling off. Ami could not touch it, but looked hard-fiedly into the distorted parody of what once been a face. What was it, Nathan? What was it, Nathan? What was it? He whispered, and the cleft, bulging lips was just able to crackle out a final answer. Nothing. Nothing. The color... It burns, cold and wet, but it burns. It lived in the well. I seen it, a kind of smoke, just like the flowers last spring. The well shone at night, Thad and Marnie and Xenius, sucking the life out of everything in that stone. It must have come, his in the whole place. Don't know what it want, that round thing. Them men from the college dug out of the stone. They smashed it. It's the same color. Just like the flowers and plants. Must have been more of them. Seeds. Seeds. They grew. 
They growed. I seen it first time this week. Musa got strong on Thinius. It was a big boy, full of life. It beats down your mind, and then gets you, burns you up, in the well water. You're right about that. Evil water. Xenius never came back from the well. Can't get away. It draws you. Yet, you know something's a-coming, but taint no use. I seen it time and time again. Xenius was took. Where's Nabi Ami? My head's no good. Don't know how long it's been since I fed her. It'll get her if we ain't careful. It's just color. Her face is getting to have that color sometimes at night. And it burns and sucks. It comes from a place where things ain't as they is here. One of them professors said so. He was right. Look out on me. It'll do something more. Sucks a laugh out. But that was all. That which spoke could speak no more, because it completely caved in. Ami laid a red-checked tablecloth over what was left and reeled out the back door into the fields. He climbed on the slope to the ten-acre pasture and stumbled home by the north road in the woods. He could not pass that well from which his horse ran away. He had looked at it through the window and seen no stone was missing from the rim. Then the lurching buggy had not dislodged anything. The splash had been something else. Something which went into the well after it had done with poor Nathan. When Ami reached his house, the horse and buggy arrived before him, enthroned his wife in fits of anxiety. Reassuring her without explanations, he set out once again for Otham and notified the authorities that the Gardner family was no more. He indulged them no details, but merely told them of the deaths of Nathan and Nabby that of Thaddeus being already known, and mentioned that the cause seemed to be the same strange element that killed the livestock. He also stated that Merwin and Zinnius had disappeared. There was considerable questioning at the police station, and at the end Ami was compelled to take three officers to the gardener farm, together with the coroner, the medical examiner, and the veterinary who had treated the diseased animals. He went much against his will, for the afternoon was advancing, and he feared the fall of night over that accursed place. But there was some comfort to have so many people with him. The six men drove out a Democrat wagon, following Ami's buggy, and arrived at the pest-ridden farmhouse around four o'clock. Used as the officers were to gruesome experiences, not one remained unmoved at what was found in the attic and under the red-checked tablecloth. On the floor below. The whole aspect of the farm, with its gray desolation, was terrible enough, but those two crumbling objects was beyond all bounds, and no one could look long at them. Even the medical examiner admitted that there was very little to examine. Specimens were to be analyzed, of course, so he busied himself with obtaining them. In here develops that a very puzzling aftermath occurred at the college laboratory where the two files of dust were finally taken. After the spectroscope, both samples gave off an unknown spectrum which many of the baffling bands were precisely like those that the strange meteor had yielded in pre the previous year. The property of emitting this spectrum vanished in a month, and the dust thereafter consisted mainly of alkaline phosphates and carbonates. 
Armie would not have told the man of the well if he thought they meant to do anything. Then and there. It was getting towards sunset and he was anxious to be away, but he could not help but glancing nervously at the stony curb by the great sweep. And when a detective questioned him, he admitted Nathan had feared something down there, so much that he never even thought of searching for Merwin or Zinnius. After that, nothing would be done but that they empty and explore the well immediately. So Ami had to wait, trembling, while pail after pail of rank water was hurried and splashed on the soaking ground outside. Men stiffened disgust on the fluid, and towards the last, held their nose against the fetter they were uncovering. It was not so long a job as they feared it would be, since the water was phenomenally low. There is no need to speak to exactly what they found. Merwin and Zidius were both there, in part, though the vestiges were mainly skeletal. There was also a small deer, a large dog, about in the same state, and the number of bones of smaller animals. The ooze and slime at the bottom seemed inexplicably porous and bubbling, and a man who descended on the handholds with a long pole found that he can sink the wooden shaft any depth in the mud on the floor without meeting any solid obstruction. Twilight had now fallen, and lanterns were now brought to the house. Then, when it was seen that nothing further could be gained from the well, everyone went indoors and conferred in the ancient sitting room, while the intermittent light of a half-spectral moon played wanely on the gray desolation outside. The men were frankly nonplussed by the entire case. They could find no conceiving common element to link the strange vegetable conditions, the unknown disease of livestock and humans, and the unaccountable deaths of Merwin and Zinnius in the tainted well. They had heard the common country talk. It is true that they could not believe anything contrary to natural law had occurred. No doubt the meteor had poisoned the soil, but the illness of persons and animals who had eaten nothing grown in that soil was another matter. Was it in the well water? Potentially. It might be a good idea to analyze it, but what particular madness could have made both boys jump into the well? Their deeds were so similar, the fragment shown that they both suffered from the gray, brittle death. Why was everything so gray and brittle? It was the coroner, seated near a window, overlooking the yard, who first noticed the glow about the well. Night had fully set in, and all the aberrant ground seemed to seemed faintly luminescent, with more than the fitful moonbeams. But this new glow was something definite and distinct, and appeared to shoot up from the black pit, like a softened ray from a searchlight, given dual reflections in the little brown pools where the water had been emptied. It had been a very queer color, and all the men clutched around the window. Ami gave a violent start, but the strange beam of ghastly miasma was to him of no unfamiliar hue. He had seen that color before, and feared to think what it might mean. He had seen it in the nasty, brutal globule in that era light two summers ago. It had been seen in the crazy vegetation of springtime, and had thought he'd seen it for an instant that very morning against the small barred window of that terrible attic room where nameless things had happened there flashed for a second a clammy and hateful current of vapor that brushed against him 
when poor Natham had been taken by something of that color, he had said so at the last, and said it was like the gobble in the plants. After that had come the runaway in the yard and splashed in the well, and now that well was belching forth in the night a pale insidious beam of the same demonic tent. It does credit to the alertness of Omni's mind that he puzzled even at the tense moment over a point which was essentially scientific. He could not but wonder at his gleaning of the same impression from a vapor glimpsed in daylight against a window opening on the morning sky and from an eternal exhalation as seen as a phosphorescent mist against the black and blasted landscape. It wasn't right. It was against nature. And he thought of those terrible last words of his stricken friend. It, it came from some place where things ain't as they is here. One of them professors said so. All three horses outside, tied to a pair of shriveled saplings on the road, were now neighing and pawing frantically. The wagon driver started for the door to do something, but Ami laid a shaking hand on his shoulder. Don't go out there, he whispered. There's more to this, nor what we know. Nathan said something. Lived in that well that sucks out your life. He said it must been something grove from the round ball like the ones we've seen in the meteor stone that fell a year ago, June. Sucks and burns, he said. And it's just a cloud of color like that light out there now that you can hardly see and can hardly tell what it is. Nathan thought it feeds on everything living and gets stronger all the time. He said he's seen it this last week. Must have been something from far off in the sky, like like the moon from the college last year says the meteor stone was. That way it made and the way it works ain't like no way of God's world. And it's something from beyond. So the men paused incisively as the light from the well grew stronger and the hitched horses and whinnied in increasing frenzy. It was truly an awful moment with terror in that ancient and accursed house itself. Four monstrous sets of fragments two from the house and two from the well and in the woodshed from behind that the shaft of unknown and holy iridescence from the slimy depths in the front Ami had restrained the driver on impulse forgetting how uninjured he himself was after the clammy brushing of that colored vapor in the attic room and perhaps it's just as well that he acted as he did no one will ever know what was abroad that night Though the blasphemy from beyond had not so far hurt any humans of unweak mind, there's no telling what it might not have done that last moment, and with its seemingly increased strength and the special signs of purpose, it was soon to display beneath the half-clouded, moonlit sky. All at once, one of the detectives at the window gave a short, sharp gasp, and the others looked at him and quickly followed his gaze upward to the point at which its idle straying had suddenly arrested. There was no need for words. What had been disputed in country gossip was disputed no longer, and it's because the thing which every man of that party agreed in whispering later on the strange days are never talked about in Arkham. It is necessary 
to premise that there's no wind at the hour of the evening, nor did it arise not long after, but there was absolutely none of them. Even the dry lips of the lingering hedge, mustard gray and blighted, in the fringe of the roof on the standing Democrat wagon unstirred, he had amid that tense, ungodly calm of the high, bare burrows of the tree. Of all the trees in the yard were moving, they're twitching morbidly and spasmodically, clawing in convulsive and an epileptic madness the moonlit skies, scratching impotently at the noxious air as if jerked by some alien, embodiless line of linkage with, sub with subterranean horrors writhing and struggling below the black roots. Not a man breathed for several seconds. Then a cloud of darker depths passed over the moon, and the silhouette of the clutching branches faded out momentarily. Then there was a general cry, muffled with awe, but husky, and almost identical from every throat, for the terror had not faded with the silhouette, and in a fearsome instance of deeper darkness, the watchers saw wiggling at the treetop height thousands of little points of faint, unhallowed radiance, tipping each bough like the fire of St. Elmo or of the flames that came down from the Apostles' head at Pentecost. It was a monstrous constellation of unnatural light, glutted swarm of corpse-fed fireflies dancing hellish cerebrands over an accursed marsh, and its color was the same nameless intrusion which Ami had come to recognize in dread. All the while, the shaft of phosphorescence that came from the well was getting brighter and brighter, bringing to the minds of the huddled men a sense of doom and abnormality, so far outtraced any image, and as a shapeless stream of unplaceable color left the well, it seemed to flow directly into the sky. The veterinary shivered and walked to the front door to drop the heavy extra bar against it. Ami shook no less, and had to be tugged and pointed for a lack of controllable voice as he wished to draw notice to the growing luminosity of the trees. The neighing and stamping of the horses became utterly frightful, but not for a soul in that group in the old house would have ventured forth for any earthly reward. With the moments of shining of the trees increased, while the restless branches seemed to strain more and more towards verticality, the wood of the well sweep was shining now, presently, and presently a policeman dumbly pointed to some wooden sheds and beehives near the stone wall of the west. They were commencing to shine, though the tethered vehicles of the visitors seemed so far unaffected, there was wild commotion and clopping on the road. As Ami quenched the lamp for better saying, they realized that the span of frantic greys had broke through their saplings and ran off with the Democrat wagon. The shock served to loosen several tongues, and embarrassed whispers were exchanged. It spreads on everything organic that's been around here, muttered the medical examiner. No one replied. But the man who had been in the well had give a hint that his long pole must have stirred up something intangible. It was awful, he added. There was no bottom to it at all, just ooze and bubbles. 
and the feeling of something lurking underneath there. Army's horse still pawed and screamed deafeningly in the road outside and nearly drowned its owner's faint as he mumbled his useless reflection. It came from the stone. It growed down there. It got everything living. It fed itself on a mind and body. Thad and Marnie, Xenius and Nabby. Nathan was the last. They all drunk the water. They got strong on them. It came from beyond where things ain't like they be here. Now it's going home. At this point, the column of unknown color flared suddenly stronger and began to weave itself into fantastic suggestions of shapes, which each spectator later described differently. There came from the poor tethered hero such a sound that no man before or since ever heard from a horse. Every person in the low-pitched sitting room stopped his ears. An army turned away from the window in horror and nausea. Words could not convey it. When Ami looked out again, the hapless beast lay huddled and inert on the moonlit ground between the splintered shafts on the buggy. That was the last of Hero till they buried him the next day. In the present, there was no time to mourn, for almost at this instant, a detective silently called attention to something terrible in the very room with them. In the absence of lamplight, it was clear that a faint phosphorescence had begun to pervade the entire apartment. It glowed on the broad planked floor and the fragment of rag carpet and shimmered over the sashes of the small paneled windows and ran up and down the exposed corner posts, coestated about the shelf and mantel and infected every door and furniture. Each minute saw it strengthen and it was at last very plain that healthy living things must leave that house. Ami shooed them to the back door in the path through the fields in the ten-acre pasture where they walked. Then they walked and stumbled as if in a dream. They did not dare look back till they were very far away on the high ground. They were glad of the path, for they would have not gone the front way by that well. It was bad enough passing the glowing barn and sheds and those shining orchard trees with gnarled fiendish contours. And thank heavens the branch did their worst twisting high up. The moon was under some very black clouds as they crossed the rustic bridge over Chapman's Brook. It was blind groping from there to the open meadows. Then they looked back towards the valley in the distant gardener's place. At the bottom they saw the, a fearsome sight. All the farms were shining with hideous unknown blend of color. Trees, buildings, and even grass and herbage that had not been wholly changed to lethal gray bitterness. The boughs were all straining skyward, tipped with tongues of foul flame, and lambent tricklings of the same monstrous fire were creeping about the rib uh, poles of the house, barn, and sheds. It was a scene from a villain from Fusseline, and overall the resign that the riot of luminous amorphousness, that alien and undimensioned rainbow of cryptic poison from the well, seething, feeling, lapping, reaching, scintillating, straining, and malignly bubbling in its cosmic and unrecognizable chromaticism. Then, without warning, the hideous thing shot vertically up through the sky like a rocket or meteor, leaving behind no trail and disappearing through 
a round and curiously regular hole in the clouds. Before any man could gasp or cry out, no watcher could ever forget the sight, and Ami stared blankly at the stars of Cygnus, Deneb, twinkling above the others, where the unknown color had melted into Milky Way. But his gaze, that next moment, called swiftly to Earth by the crackling in the valley. It was just that, only wood ripping and crackling, not an explosion, as so many others of the party vowed. Yet the outcome was the same, for in one feverish kaleidoscopic instant, there burst upwards from the doomed and accursed farm a gleaming eruptive cataclysm of unnatural sparks and substance, blurring the glance of the few who saw it and sending forth to the zenith of a bombarding cloudburst such a colored and fantastic fragments as our universe must needs disavow. Through quickly reclosing vapors, they followed the great morbidity that had vanished, and in another second, they had vanished too. Behind and below was only a darkness which the men dared not return, and all about was a mounting wind which seemed to sweep down into black florid gusts from interstellar space. It screeched and howled and lashed the fields and distorted woods in a mad cosmic frenzy. Till soon the trembling party realized there'd be no use raiding for the moon to shoo them what was left there at Nathams. Too odd to even hint theories, the seven shaking men trudged back toward Arkham by the north road. Ami was worse than his fellows, and had begged them to see him inside his own kitchen, instead of keeping on straight to town. He did not wish to cross the nighted, wind-whipped woods alone to his home on the main road, for he had an added shock that the others were spared, and was crushed forever with a brooding fear he dare not even mention for many years to come. As the rest of the watchers on that hill had stolidly set their faces towards the road, Ami looked back in an instant in the shadowed valley of desolation so lately shattering his ill-starred friend, and from that stricken faraway spot he seed something feebly rise only to sink back down upon the place which the great shapeless horror had shot into the sky. And because Ami recognized the color he knew, that this last faint remnant must still lurk down there in the well, and he had never been quite right since. Ami would never go near that place again. It is over half a century since the horror had happened, but he had never been there, and will be glad when the new reservoir blots it out. I shall be glad too, for I do not like the way the sunlight changed color around the mouth of that abandoned well. As I passed, soon the water will be very deep. But even so, I shall never drink it. I do not think I will visit Arkham country hereafter. Three of the men who had been with Army returned the next morning to see the ruins by daylight. But there were no real ruins. Only the bricks of the chimney, the stones of the cellar, and some mineral and metallic litter here and there. In the rim of the Nefandus well, save Ami's dead horse, which they towed away and buried that they shortly returned to him. Everything that had ever been living was gone. Five eldritch acres 
of dusty gray desert remains, nor has anything ever been grown there since. To this day it sprawls open to the sky like a great spot eaten by acid in the woods and fields, and the few who had dared glimpse it, in spite of the rural tales, had named it the Blessed Heath. Rural tales are queer. They might even be queerer if city folk and college chemists could be interested enough to analyze the water from that disused well, or the gray dust that no wind seems to ever disperse. Botanists, too, ought to study the stunted flora on the borders of that spot, for they might shed light on the country notion that the blight is spreading, little by little, perhaps an inch a year. People say that the color of the neighboring herbage is not quite right in the spring, and wild things leave queer prints in the light winter snow. Snow never seems to be quite so heavy on the blasted heath as it is everywhere else. Horses, the few that are left in this motor age, grow skittish in the silent valley, and hunters cannot depend on their dogs too near the, the splotch of grayish dust. They say the mental influences are very bad too. Numbers went queer in the years after Nathan's taking, and they always lacked the power to get away. Then the stronger mind folk all left the region, and only the foreigners tried to live in the crumbling old homesteads. They could not stay though, and one sometimes wonder what sight beyond their wild and weird stores of whispered magic had given them. Their dreams at night, they protest, are very horrible in that grotesque country, and surely the very look of the dark realm is enough to stir a morbid fancy. No traveler had escaped a sense of strangeness in those strange ravines. An artist shiver as they paint thick woods whose mysteries is as much as of the spirit of the eye. I myself am curious about the sensation I derived from my one lone walk before Ami told me his tale. When twilight came, I vaguely wished some clouds would gather, for an odd timidity about the deep sky voids had crept into my soul. Do not ask me for my opinion, for I do not know. That is all. There is no one but Ami to question, for Arkham people will not talk about the strange days, and all three professors who saw the aerolite and its colored global are dead. There are other globals. Depend upon that. One must have fed itself and escaped, and probably there was another which was too late. No doubt it's still down in the well. I know that there is something wrong with the sunlight I saw above the miasmal brink. The rustics say the blight creeps an inch a year, so perhaps there is some growth or nourishment even now. But whatever demon hatchling there is, it must be tethered to something, or else it would spread quickly. Is it fastened to the roots of the trees that claw the air? One of the current Arkham tells about the fat oaks that shine and move as ought they not at night. What it is, only God knows, in terms of matter. I suppose the thing Ami described would be called a gas, but this gas obeyed laws that are not of our cosmos. This is no fruit of such worlds, and suns as shine on the telescopes and the photogenic plates of our observatories. This is no breath from the sky, whose motions and dimensions our astronomers measure to deem too vast to measure. It was a color out of space, a frightful message 
from an unformed realm of infinity, beyond all nature as we know it, from the realms whose mere existence stunts the brain and numbs us, with the black extra-cosmic gulfs it throws before our frenzied eyes. I doubted very much if Ami consciously lied to me. I do not think his tale was all a freak of madness. As the town folk had forewarned, something terrible came to the hills and valleys on that meteor, and something terrible, though I know not in what proportion, will remain. I shall be glad to see the water come. Meanwhile, I hope nothing happens to Ami. He saw so much of the thing, and its influence so insidious. Why has he never moved away? How clearly he recalled the dying words of Nathan's. Can't get away. Draws ya. You know something's coming, but taint no use. Ami is such a good old man, and when the Reservoir gang gets to work, I must write the chief engineer to keep a sharp eye out on him. I would hate to think of him as the grey, twisted, brittle monstrosity which persists more and more in troubling my sleep.